Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're working our way every week. If you're new here, we, uh, every week we do another chapter in the book of Luke. And I don't, uh, don't do the entire chapter. I just pick one thing, a story or a parable. Uh, one thing from the chapter, and then the next week we move on. There's 24 chapters in Luke, and today we're doing chapter 14, all right? So I'll read you the first six verses, and it's the healing of a man on the Sabbath. And uh, I wanted to do one of these uh, Sabbath conflict stories because they're so con- uh, common in the, in the Gospels. It's, uh, it's one of the, you know, the themes in the book of Luke is there's these regular conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath, and I think Jesus wants to speak to us through this here this morning. One Sabbath, so I'll read to you chapter 14, verse 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That's what we would call today uh, edema. And it's, uh, it's uh, when you have fluid buildup uh, inside your body in various places. Usually it's in the legs or in the feet, but it can also happen in the, in the lungs. It's called edema. Now, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. All right. So the first thing you have to understand, and, and uh, Patrick, if you go back to that first, uh, first verse there, that'd be great. But says that they were at, he was at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, okay? So this wasn't, I mean, the Pharisees in general were, uh, you know, they were middle class to the wealthy class. There wasn't very many poor people who were Pharisees. And this is a chief of the Pharisees. So this is a nice place. This is a man with a lot of power and respect and wealth. And, uh, and there's lawyers. We know from the next verse there's lawyers. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees uh, there. And then... But then there's this man with dropsy. And the thing you have to understand is this man didn't just happen to be there. This is, this is a party by invite only. And these are men of wealth and these are men of power. And they did not hang out with people who had dropsy. One of the reasons being that a lot of the religious Jews in those days believed that dropsy was punishment for God for serious sin, particularly sexual sin. So they would, have, they would have seen this man with dropsy as being very unclean. This is not the kind of person they would associate with. So this guy didn't just, this is not out in the street. This is not just out in the street and the Pharisees and the guy with dropsy happened to be in the same place at the same time. This is a setup. These guys, these guys would not normally have a person like this in their house. But they have this guy in their house because this is a setup and they want to get Jesus in trouble. And over and over again we see throughout the Gospels this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, about the, the, uh, the Sabbath. And it says there, uh, in the first verse there, they were watching him carefully. They were watching him carefully. Okay? So it's a setup. They're looking for trouble. They have this guy into the home. They invite Jesus over. And they're looking to get Jesus in trouble for breaking the Sabbath. But again, as we've seen throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus isn't confused. He's not backpedaling. He's not on the defensive. Whenever they attack him or try to ensnare him, he always flips it around and turns it on them, usually just with a question, and he does it here again. He says to them, is it lawful, at the end of verse 3 there, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, that's kind of an interesting question. In fact, if you really stop to think of it, you might wonder, why would he even ask this question? Because 
The Pharisees are the experts in the law, and they obviously believe that Jesus is breaking the law. That's why they're mad at him, okay? So if you really stop to think of it, why would he even stop to ask them? Because, I mean, we know the answer already. That's why they're trying to get him in trouble. So why would he even bother to ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, okay? And this is where we have to go on a little bit of a pause because I want to lay a foundation again. I've talked about this before, but it's super, super important for understanding these conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees, but even at a deeper level, it's super, super important for under, understanding Jesus in general and what he taught and also the Gospels and in the entire New Testament. Because people, there's this, there's this sort of Jesus that's been built up in our culture and a lot of us read these stories, even if we deep down know it's wrong, in our hearts we read these stories wrong because of this picture that's been set up in our culture that Jesus was a lawbreaker, that he was just a rebel. And the Pharisees and, you know, kind of the God of the Old Testament, they were all about laws and rules and rules and rules and rules. And then Jesus came along and said, whoa, 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 guys, it's not about rules, it's about grace. And he just overturned all the laws and he was all about grace. And so when Jesus came, he was just breaking all the laws because he doesn't like law and he's all about grace. And lots of people read the Gospels that way and lots of people read Jesus that way. And it's absolutely, totally false, and you'll miss what he's actually doing in these interactions. In fact, you'll miss some of the major points of the New Testament if you read it that way. And so one of the first things you have to understand is that one of the biggest points that all of the New Testament writers are trying to make, including the writers of the gospel, one of the biggest points they are trying to make in the entire New Testament is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Okay, this is really important. And most of us as Christians know this. We know this in our heads somewhere, technically. Well, Jesus is God, so therefore he is God of the Old Testament. But most of us actually never really, in our hearts when we're reading the New Testament, we kind of play off Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. We treat them in our hearts as if they're different. And rarely would we ever say it that specifically, that Jesus is, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament and Jesus are one and the same. Okay? And I'll show you just a couple of verses, and I could show you many, many. I had to cut some out yesterday because this message just got far too long. But I'll show you a couple of messages, and some of you may still think it's too long. But anyway, Jude, verse 5. There's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude, verse 5. And just so you know, when you're reading the book of Jude, uh, to keep in mind is that the Jude is the brother of Jesus. So when you're reading this, you're reading from a sibling of Jesus, someone who grew up in the same home with Jesus. He was a brother. Okay, and so what he says about Jesus in this verse is absolutely fascinating. Imagine saying this about your brother. And Jude says this, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, speaking of his brother, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, a couple of things there. First of all, Jude is directly linking Jesus to the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. And we think of those often in our hearts. Again, in our heads, we technically know Jesus is God. But when we read the Old Testament, in our hearts, often we play those two, th those two off each other. Like the God of the Old Testament was one way, and then Jesus came along in the New Testament, and he was totally a different way. But Jude says, whoa, 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 whoa. The God who split the Red Sea, the God who sent 10 major plagues on Egypt and brought Egypt to its knees and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians who didn't have the blood over their doorposts, he says, that was Jesus. That was my brother who did that. 
And then he says after that, not only taking them out of Egypt, he says, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And a lot of us really in our hearts, we don't think that's Jesus because Jesus is grace and not law. But it says here that when the Israelites went out into the wilderness, and remember they were grumbling, and so God sent some plagues on them and all sort of stuff. Uh, when we say God, Judah's saying, that God is Jesus. That God who did that came down in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. This is not a minor point in the New Testament. This is one of the main points they're all trying to make. That God you've been worshiping all this time is Jesus. And I could show it to you in all of the Gospels, in the writings of John, in the writings of Paul. I just showed it to you with Jude. I'll show you one more example. I'll show you one from Paul. And, uh, and then we'll just have to leave it at that for this one. But when you get this, it totally changes the way you read the Gospels. Jesus is a lawbreaker. Did he change his mind? Did he write the Ten Commandments and then go, oh, that didn't work. Uh, let's try grace and then come down and overturn everything he did? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, speaking of the Israelites in the Old Testament, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So Paul is directly linking Jesus to the stories of Exodus. He's saying, when they got water out of the rock, that was Jesus. The God who was walking with them in the wilderness, that was Jesus. Okay, he's going to keep going here now. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. And by the way, again, this is the New Testament speaking to us as Christians. That we might not desire evil as they did. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. He's making specific references now to specific stories in the Old Testament. That's Numbers chapter 25, okay? That's a story where Phineas stopped the plague by uh, going and, uh, and stabbing a guy in his, in his tent. Uh, some great stories there in the Old Testament. And then we must not put Christ. Now look at what Paul does here. He's taking these specific stories from the book of Numbers, and then he's putting Jesus in it just like Jude did. We must not put Christ. Wait a minute. They were putting Christ to the test when they were committing immorality there during that whole plague? Paul says, that was Jesus. That God came down in the flesh, and that's Jesus. Okay, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. That's Numbers 21, when they were grumbling. And it says here, Jesus sent, sent snakes into the camp, and that's the one where Moses had to put up a bronze serpent for them to look to it and be healed. That was Jesus that did that. Now, does that change a little bit of your picture of Jesus? You know, in this modern culture we have today, where people are trying to make Jesus in their own image, this kind of progressive kind of person in the, in, the, in the use of the term progressive as it's used now in our culture today, we need to always go back to the Bible and figure out and make sure we're worshiping the real Jesus and not an idol that we're calling Jesus. And Paul says, that was Jesus, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. That's Numbers chapter 11. All of them, Paul says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So this should radically change the way, actually, we read the whole Bible. When you read Old Testament stories and you think of God as this wrathful God, remember that, that, that that's Jesus and actually he's full of love and grace. And when you read in the Gospels about Jesus... And you think he's so full of grace, he absolutely is, and don't you absolutely love him for it, but don't ever forget that he actually still cares about sin. It's the same God. And so when we read these stories and these conflicts, 
with the Pharisees, this has huge implications for everything, how we read the New Testament, but certainly it has implications for when we read stories like these with the Pharisees. You have to understand when you read these stories that Jesus is the one who made the laws in the Old Testament. That was that God. And he didn't come in the New Testament because he changed his mind, and now he, he, see again, when you have in your heart this idea that they're two gods, you might know in your head that they're, that they're the same God, but in your heart you might treat them as two, then you can get all these weird theologies, like are out with so many Christians these days, where it's almost like that was God, and he was all about law, and that failed, so Jesus came along with grace. When you realize that that is one and the same God, you realize Jesus didn't fail. It wasn't a mistake. We needed grace, but he wasn't undoing. He wasn't undoing the laws that he made. He's not a rebel out to overturn his own rules. So you say, well, what's happening there then when he seems to be breaking all these rules with the Pharisees? I'll tell you what's happening. Not once in the entire, in all of the Gospels, does Jesus ever break one of his laws. Not once. How else could he have died for us on the cross if he had sinned? He's God. He doesn't break his own character. Wherever you see rule breaking in the Gospels, because there is some rule breaking, I'll tell you what he was breaking. He was breaking their man-made rules. Jesus never once broke his own law, but he often went out of his way, and I think he took some glee out of it, to break their man-made traditions. And I'll show you a few examples. See, the Pharisees had over time built up a whole massive complex of extra laws. And by the way, in the Pharisees' defense, can we come to their defense for a bit? It's so easy for us 2,000 years removed to just make them these evil devils and they did have a lot of issues and kind of separate us from them and look down on them. But the whole Pharisee movement, you know when it started? It started just after Ezra. You know the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? You know, and Nehemiah? What happened is the Israelites were disobedient so God put them in exile in Babylon. When they came back, you know, in the, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have the story of them rebuilding the, the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. And what happened after that is this religious movement started that was like, the reason we went into Babylon is because we disobeyed. About that, they were right. They were right. It was their wickedness that caused them to go into Babylon. What they did next was wrong. What they thought then is, in order to not go into, into exile again, we got to make sure we keep the laws, which, nothing wrong with that. But what they then began to do was they began to put fences around all the laws and start to add more and more man-made laws to keep them from breaking God's laws. And so with the Sabbath in particular, and I'm just going to hone in on the Sabbath, they had hundreds and hundreds of extra. By the time Jesus comes along, you know, centuries later, they have added unbelievable hundreds and of, of extra laws on top of God's law in their sort of self-righteous attempt to be righteous before God. So just with the Sabbath law, so, you know, God had them observing a Sabbath, a day of rest once a week in the Old Testament. Around the Sabbath, I was looking up the Talmud online uh, this week, and it was, I, I was, it was actually a joy. I had a lot of pleasure reading this thing. It's just amazing, some of the things you learn in there. But they had divided the Sabbath law into 39 different categories of different things that would be work, that if you did this, then you would be breaking the law. And then within each of those categories, they've got some kind, sometimes dozens of laws, hundreds of laws just about the Sabbath. And all of it in this thing like, okay, God doesn't want us to break the Sabbath. Let's add all of these extra rules to make sure we're really doing it right. So for example, they had a rule for exactly how far a person could walk on the Sabbath. And if you went anything over that, you were breaking the Sabbath. So you could walk any distance up to 2,000 cubits, that's about two-thirds of a mile. 
If you went anything over two-thirds of a mile, you broke the Sabbath, you're breaking the law, okay? They had laws about what you could and could not carry. You couldn't carry keys, money, pebbles, those sorts of things. Verboten, okay? I think that's German. Uh, maybe said poorly. Um, they had a law that you couldn't carry furniture on the Sabbath. You could carry a ladder as long as you didn't carry it more than four steps, okay? And on and on and on, okay? Now, when you begin to understand this, you actually, a lot of Jesus' miracles, and I'm going to show you an example right away because it's just too fun and you'll, it brings a lot of things alive. Some of the weird healings, you know how in the, in the Gospels, Jesus, and I'll show you one in just an example, he sometimes does weird things to heal people and you're going, why would he, like, why didn't he just say you're healed? Like, why did he, you know, rubbing mud in the guy's eyes? Why would he do that? And then you have to understand is when you understand some of their laws about the Sabbath, some of these things he was doing were not random and him just being creative. Like, I've heard people say he was just being creative, which Jesus is creative. But it wasn't him being creative. It was him specifically taking some of their man-made rules and purposely breaking them. Okay? So, for example, I'll show you one from John chapter 9. They had a law, and I'm going to read it to you word for word out of the English translation of the Talmud I was reading uh, this week. They had a law about spitting, for example. And here's what it says. A person who feels discomfort in his teeth may not sip vinegar and spit it out. He may, however, sip it and swallow it. Okay? That was one of their Sabbath laws. All right? So you can see that they've built up a lot of extra rules. So you weren't supposed to spit it out. Okay? And then they had another one specifically, because I guess in those days, and, uh, they, they, you know, putting spit on your eyes was considered something good for your eyes or something. So you were allowed to do that six days a week. But on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to, to spit and then use the saliva to make a salve for your eyes. So you weren't allowed to, to spit stuff out as a general rule, and you weren't allowed to rub it in your eyes. Okay? Now... Let's go to John chapter 9, and let's look at one of Jesus' bizarre healings, and suddenly it comes alive, okay? So Jesus, this is John chapter 9, verse 6. Having said these things, he, that's Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Now, we read these, as Christians, we read these stories, and we go, weird, right? Like, just give him a hug and heal him, <laughs> right? But you see now what Jesus is doing. He is intentionally... He's been reading the Talmud, and he's going, I'm going to break those two today. <laughs> okay? So he spits on the ground, and he takes the mud, he rubs it on the guy's eyes, and he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, I'm, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that the pool of Siloam was just over 2,000 cubits away. <laughs> you know, it was about 2,005 cubits away he had to walk to get the pool of Siloam. He's just breaking their rules. That's what he's doing. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He's breaking their man-made traditions, okay? He's destroying them. But he's not overturning his own law, okay? And this is so important because, again, it radically shapes the way we understand Jesus and, and read these stories. And uh, I'm going I'm to show you a few patterns in just a moment. But one of the reasons I, I just feel such a burden to come back to this truth regularly is because of a certain current of thought, and I don't like to, to use labels a lot, but, but we'll call them, uh, you know, that camp that we would call, you know, theologically liberal. Not speaking about politics here, not politically liberal, but theologically liberal. There's this, this whole camp that tries to remake Jesus in their own image. And they say things like, Jesus was just all about grace, he wasn't about law. And then based on that, they start throwing out laws that they feel are not you know, keeping up with the times. Like the Old Testament is just so old-fashioned and cruel. 
forgetting that the Jesus they say they worship was the God who did all of that stuff. So then they throw out, you know, sexual immorality, you know, premarital sex and adultery and homosexuality. They just throw those things out and they say, Jesus wouldn't have cared about those things. That was Old Testament. That's this. And the thing you have to understand is Jesus wrote those laws. And unless we understand that and stand firm in it, we get washed by all kinds of wishy-washy doctrines that are not rooted or grounded in Scripture. Jesus made those laws, and he certainly still cares about them. That's why Matthew 5, 17 to 19, I've read this to you before, but it says this, and then I'm going to show you something right after this that I think is really important. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. Of course he didn't, because he did those things. And he's perfect. It's not like he makes mistakes. The Old Testament wasn't a mistake. It's part of the story. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, have heaven and earth passed away yet? Last I checked, no. Summer hopefully has not passed away, but... <laughs> until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And again, of course, this, and we've talked about this before, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial uh, you know, ordinances, obviously, were always intended to be temporary from the beginning. When Jesus died on the cross, we no longer need animal sacrifices or a physical temple. And so obviously those things, temporary, they have, they, they have passed away in the sense that we no longer need those things anymore. But the moral laws, Jesus has not changed his mind about right and wrong. And that's why he says this next. Therefore, like, do we take these passages seriously? Some, some Christians who are teaching and preaching, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the problem with the Pharisees is that by adding man-made laws to God's law, they were actually disobeying God's law. Over and over and over again, Jesus, they didn't know him as that in the Old Testament, but we know that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Jesus warned them not to add to his law. And I'll show, I can show you many passages, but let's just look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Now look at these two things. You shall not, one, add to it, or two, take away from it right? Two things, two things in this passage. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it. You shall not take away from it. Now, we see both of those things happening in the church today. And there's two ditches we have to stay out of. Two ditches we have to stay out of. Adding to God's laws is legalism and it brings death. Taking away from God's law is license and it also brings death. Both ditches bring death death. Adding to God's law is legalism, death. Taking away from God's law, license, also death. Now, I think what's happening, we see both these things happening in the church today, and certainly we're not perfect. You know, these are things we have to work out ourselves as we try not to swing into either ditch. But I think what's happened with a lot of people is, in this area, people have sometimes grown up or been exposed to churches that were legalistic. And there was death in that. There was control. There was spiritual abuse. There was no grace. There was no joy. There was no spiritual vitality. And then at some point later in their life, 
they experienced Jesus' grace and it was so wonderful. It was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is so wonderful. How come this message was not preached to me in my church? Or maybe they have family members in a church like that that's very legalistic. But what sometimes happens to those people then is you swing all the way over to this other side now. You've had such a bad experience with legalism and death that now the moment anyone talks about God's law or righteousness or something that God expects us to do, they say, no, 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 no. I experienced that back there and it was death. I, I experienced law. Don't talk to me about law. Don't talk to me about do's and don'ts. I know what do's and don'ts are. They are death. But here's the thing you have to understand. Man-made laws, being forced to obey man-made laws like that is death. But obeying God's law is never death. Is never death. I'm gonna show you some passages in just a moment, but let's just, let's just sit here for just a moment and look at what legalism is. It is never, let me just say this, it is never legalistic to obey God's laws. It's not legalistic to tell the truth. Did you know that? Is that legalistic? It's not legalistic to be fair and honest in your business deals. Is that legalistic? It's not legalistic if you're married to keep yourself pure in your marriage and not commit adultery or look at pornography. That is not legalistic. Legalism has nothing to do with God's law and everything to do with man-made laws. So let's look at some examples, and I'll start off with some easy ones just to kind of warm you up. Certain musical styles are sinful. That would be legalism because nothing in here says anything about musical style, right? Now, certain musical styles maybe shouldn't exist. <laughs> but to say that a musical style is sinful, you know, my wife went on, uh, I don't know if it's a month or so ago, for one of her events that she was doing at Sailor, they were doing some kind of 80s event, so she brought some uh, Petra some Petra songs. And at first I was really pumped about that because I thought I remembered, you know, that's a bit of, bit of rock. I was looking forward with the kids. We're going to listen to some Petra. And I remember sitting in the van the one time with the kids. I picked them up after school. I'm like, guys, mom just got some Petra. We're going to listen to some Petra. And the kids are looking at me like, whatever, right? So I'm gonna, we're going to crank up some Petra. So I put on our first song and we listened about 30 seconds. I looked at Joy. She had this kind of look on her face. I said, let's try the next one. And uh, tried the next one. I Try a third one. I'm like, this is just bad. <laughs> and we haven't listened to it since, but I did have some complaints from some Petra fans last night. But anyway, it's not a sin to listen to Petra. It might be bad taste or poor taste, but anyway, it's not a sin. Um, so certain musical styles are sinful. You know, men have to dress a certain way or women have to wear dresses. That's legalism. It's not in the Bible. It's not in here. Anything you add, you might have all kinds of good reasons. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, it's, yeah, but it's not in here. <laughs> now, let me just differentiate something here. You might have a dress code at work, because I know some young people are going to take this and abuse it. My boss is making me wear a suit to work. That's legalism. Put your suit on, okay? <laughs> you know, you might have a bank or someplace like that, and they want a certain environment, and they want you to wear certain clothes. That's not legalism. That's, that's a business or a family. There's a place for rules like that. Where it becomes legalism is where you apply this. Everybody else has to dress this way or do this this way in order, otherwise it's a sin. Like everybody has to follow the rules this way or it's a sin. The moment you make it like that and it's not in here, it's legalism. If it's in here, it's life. Nobody should commit adultery. That's life. 
Nobody should, you know, or everybody should dress a certain way, not life. That is legalism. So things like you can't celebrate Christmas. You know, people, that comes up every year at Christmas, and people start to get worried. Maybe we shouldn't be an altar stuff. You shouldn't give presents at Christmas. You shouldn't put up a Christmas tree, some of the trick-or-treating stuff and whatnot. You might have really good reasons why you do what you do, and that's perfectly fine. For you to have family rules, for you to have personal rules, and you might have really great reasons, and you're trying to teach your kids something, and so you say, so we're not going to do this, or we're not going to do that. That is perfectly fine. That is wonderful. It's not legalism. When it becomes legalism is you start to judge everyone else. Hey, they put up a Christmas tree. They, you know, that they're into the occult or whatever it is, all sorts of stuff. You know what? I'm putting up a Christmas tree again next year. It's legalism when, because you know what? In here, I have failed. I've read through this thing a few times. There's nothing about a Christmas tree in here, trick-or-treating. Okay? So that's legalism, all right? So that's what legalism looks like. Now again, you might again, you might have certain rules for yourself. I know some guys where the temptation of pornography is too much, and so you know God might speak to them, and they might switch from a smartphone to a flip phone, like a dumb phone, right? So they go from the smart to the dumb. Now they, they flip. Now that's a perfectly good thing to do. That's a great rule to have for yourself. And maybe in some of those cases, it would be a sin for you to get a smartphone. It would actually might be a sin for you personally to get a smartphone because it's a snare for you. But the moment, that's not legalism. The moment you now look at everybody else and say, you, you, and you start judging people, and if you really want to follow God, you can't have a smartphone. The moment you do that, that's not in here. That's legalism. And we could go on and on and on, right? Alcohol would be another big one in this community, right? Sometimes people have very strong feelings, and you might have good reasons why you don't drink alcohol. You might have had grown up in a family where it was abused, or, uh, or, or you might have had trouble with it at some point in your life, or whatever the reasons are, and you don't drink alcohol. That's actually great. No, we don't need alcohol to have a good life. Absolutely not. But the moment you say and start to judge others based on rules you have for yourself and you say they can't drink alcohol, you know what? Actually in here, it doesn't say in here anywhere that a person can't have a glass of wine. In fact, they, Jesus turned water into wine. Right? Okay? So we don't want to make it. Now, what does it say in here? It says don't get drunk. And if you're a young person in here and you're dabbling around on Friday nights and you think, hey, partying and getting close to drunk or drunk, that's okay with God. It's not okay with God. And you think you're just going to come to church the next day and serve and all sorts of things and it doesn't matter. It does matter to God. But legalism is man-made. God's laws are life. They're in here. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus goes at length about how much death legalism is. In Matthew 23, I can't read you the whole thing, but the whole first chunk of this chapter is about legalism. This is what he says. I'll just read you the first few verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now this is interesting. I wish I had time to go into this a little bit, but so do and observe whatever they tell you. Isn't that interesting? When they, Jesus actually says about these Pharisees who he's always fighting with, when they're teaching you Moses' law, he says, you gotta do what they say. When they're teaching God's law, do it. But, not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus says, and all their man-made stuff that they've added to this thing, these are heavy burdens. Legalism, when you add man-made rules and you start to try to apply them to everybody else and you make the Christian walk, it's all about your own man-made rules and laws and stuff like this. This is how you get good before God. That is death. It'll choke the life out of your relationship with Jesus and other people's relationships with Jesus, okay? But the Bible is also very clear, and this is where I want to finish this part, and then we'll go back to Luke. 
The Bible is clear that although man-made rules are burdensome and life-killing, God's laws are life-giving. Let's go to Psalm 19. And I can show you many other passages, but let's go to Psalm 19. And let's see what Jesus himself says, because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who inspired David to write this. And this is what he says. And to every Christian out there who thinks in their reaction against some of the legalism, they think that God's law is death. Look at what God says about his law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Killing the soul or reviving the soul? Reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant ward. In keeping them, there is great reward. Did Jesus change his mind in between Psalm 19 and Matthew chapter 1? No, he didn't. Now, of course, we know that salvation, even with God's law, we know that salvation doesn't come by obeying God's law. Isn't that true? Salvation comes by grace alone. Yes? Can even God's law, even though it's life-giving in a sense, when you obey it, it's wonderful. None of us obeys it perfectly, and you can't be saved by obeying it. He never gave us the law to save us. He gave us the law to show us the difference between right and wrong, and it's life to live righteously. But our salvation is thanks to his forgiveness, free of charge. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Thank you for your blood. We don't earn it. We can't earn it, and you'll never earn it. But having been covered by his blood and forgiven, as you read in your devotions and you come across his commandments, and then you meditate on covered by his blood, knowing that you'll never, you'll never be perfect, but he forgives you anyway. That's his grace. But knowing that he has grace for you, now you come across, tell the truth and be honest. And you listen in prayer and you apply those things to your life and you grow in righteousness and character. David says, that is wonderful. It will give you joy. It will revive your heart. Amen? That's how it all comes together. So, as we go back to Luke, let's go back to Luke chapter 14. And in this particular place, it's specifically the Sabbath. So as we're back in Luke now, we understand Jesus is not overturning God's law. He's overturning legalism. But he's not overturning God's law. In particularly the Sabbath. This now changes the way we read these stories, right? So let's read again verses 2 through 6. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now his point here is now we see what he's doing. He's cutting through the man-made laws. He's saying, let's go back to God's law. Forget about all the stuff you've added. Let's go back to the real one. Is it against God's law to heal on the Sabbath? If it was, Jesus wouldn't do it. Okay? But they remain silent. They can't quote him anything out of here. They can't quote him anything out of here. They can quote their Talmud. But they can't quote this. They remain silent. So then he took him and healed him and sent him away. By the way, don't you just love that? 
This guy was only there because the Pharisees brought him in because they wanted to trap Jesus, and Jesus heals him anyway. It doesn't matter why you end up in Jesus' presence or how things were manipulated or how bad things were. He says, and you get a healing. The Pharisees wanted to use you to get me in trouble. Ha, on them, you're getting a healing and sends them away. You don't want to be here any longer. This is bad company, right? <laughs> you're healed, go, right? Then he took them and healed them and sent them away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things, okay? What's Jesus' point here? Jesus' point, and in all of these conflicts with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, his point is not that they shouldn't observe a Sabbath. His point is, what is the Sabbath? It's not a day they had made so many rules around the Sabbath, basically it was a day to do nothing. Just, just do nothing, and that's a Sabbath. Jesus says, it's not a day to do nothing, it's a day to do good. It's a day to do good, and as I was praying about this message, see, I was thinking to myself, what would Jesus say to us about the Sabbath if he was here today? And I tell you, it'd be different than what he said to them, because our problem is different. Their problem was, that they had taken the Sabbath and built up this whole superstructure of man-made laws and made the Sabbath into this life-killing, rule-bound, do-nothing thing. That's not our problem today. Our problem today is that many of us don't even know what a Sabbath is. We don't know what it is to stop and rest and think about God. And I don't have time in this message to develop a whole theology of Sabbath and rest and how that goes along with work. And I want to come back to that at some point, but I want to finish this message by planting maybe a couple of seeds of thoughts that we can begin to pray about as a church and think about. And at some point this year, I'd like to come back to it maybe in a message or two. Because, you know, I heard a quote once, and I tried to, I've tried for the life of me to find out who said this, because I'm not smart enough to have come up with it on my own, and I just couldn't find it. But anyway, someone somewhere said about our culture today, made this profound, I thought it was a profound statement. He said, when we work, we don't really work. And when we rest, we don't really rest. When we work, we don't really work. And when we rest, we don't really rest. What he meant was, you know, you see so many people today when they're at work, they're absolutely distracted. They're distracted with their devices, they're on social media, they're taking personal calls. You often see this today with people. So when they're at work, they're distracted. They're not really at work often. But then they go home when they're supposed to be resting and they also don't know how to disconnect. They don't have a day where they're actually disconnected from work. They're still taking emails and going back and forth and thinking about work. So when we work, we don't really work. And when we rest, we don't really rest. And basically what you end up with is this whole mumble jumblish. God created seven days to be a rhythm for human life. Six days he created on the seventh. That was supposed to be a pattern for us. He rested. But we've created this this mumbly mush, where it's just seven days, there's no difference. It's not six days, work, and then rest. What we do is we just kind of go through this mumbly, kind of work, distracted, work, distracted, and then seven days, and we just keep doing that. And then, and then we wonder why we're stressed out and losing our minds, don't know how to connect to God, dried out emotionally, and then I just need a long vacation. Vacation. <laughs> oh, Reset. Come back, do it again for another year. You were made for a rhythm. 
work, rest. But real rest, work, rest. But real rest, where we actually disconnect. So again, I don't have time to develop all this, but let me just briefly give you a couple of things. What is the Sabbath? Let me give you just a brief definition. And like I said, at some point I'd like to come back. What is the Sabbath? It is a day of rest. Now, rest, remember what the Pharisees did is they tried to make it a day of doing absolutely nothing. And Jesus says, if I see someone in need, the Sabbath is a day to heal. If you see someone trapped in a pit, the Sabbath is a day to rescue. It's a day to love people. The Sabbath is not about doing nothing. It is about rest, but it's about loving people and loving God. So it's a day to stop not all activity, but certain activities. Specifically, your regular activities from the other six days. So the Sabbath is a day to rest, but rest doesn't just mean I sit there and do nothing. It means I stop my regular activities and responsibilities. It's different. The seventh day is different from the other six. So of course, you know, church is, I mean, they had, they had, they went to the temple. The Jews went to the temple on the Sabbath. For them, the, Saturday, the Sabbath had to be Saturday. I'll show you a verse in just a moment. The New Testament clearly says it doesn't matter what day anymore what, that you do it on, but they went to the temple on the Sabbath. Jesus talks about the priests serving there. So to come to church on the Sabbath, that's a wonderful thing to do. You know, a bunch of you, you're, you're doing, you're, you're off to a good start here, right? You know, to, to, to sing in the, on a worship team or in the choir, to, you know, teach the Bible to, to kids, you know, during church, to serve and to love God, to hold some babies in the nursery. These are all wonderful things to do on the Sabbath. These are important things that we focus on God. Okay? But it's a disconnect from my regular activities. I'm disconnecting my mind and my body and my routine from the other six days. And it's time to love God and love people. The Sabbath isn't meant to be a burden. It's meant to refresh us. Look at this, Exodus 23, verse 12. And remember, who is the God that is speaking these words? Oh yeah, it's Jesus. Six days you shall do your work, but on a seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have a rest. So, for those of you who have an ox and a donkey, but the son of your servant woman and the alien, speaking of foreigners, not little green people, or just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but look at this, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Did you see why God gave us this law? Was it because he's a legalist? Man-made laws are death. Well, why did God give us this law? Did God go, oh, I just love getting those human beings in trouble. I love putting heavy burdens on them. Is that what God said? No. His law is life. Every seventh day, you take a break and you disconnect. Why? Because God's a mad, angry, legalistic God? No. That you may be refreshed. That you may be refreshed. I told you already, if we go to Romans 14, verse 5, in the Old Testament, it had to be on Saturday. God mandated for them, it will be on Saturday. And now, in the New Testament times, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what day. Uh, Paul says this, Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The early Christians, shortly after Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday, they started celebrating worship and doing all that sort of stuff on Sundays just to commemorate that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. Um, and, and now with the way our society runs and people have shifts and different things that they do, there maybe isn't one day that works for everybody for sure. And so, but the, 
But the principle is still there. God worked six days and on the seventh, he rested. And it's meant to refresh us. Not a day for doing nothing, certainly a day for worshiping and serving God, yes, but a day to disconnect from our regular activities. I really believe that a weekly Sabbath is a spiritual discipline that we need to grow in, right up there with daily devotions and giving. You know, sometimes some of you have your regular daily devotions. You wonder, I'm still getting tired out. It's because there's another thing that when it comes along with that daily devotional time with the Lord, and you also have a weekly disconnect where you love God and you disconnect from your regular routine and you spend time loving and serving God and loving people, it actually recharges you for the week spiritually. So I want to just finish this message. This is not about legalism. I want to just help you again. And the point isn't, I'm gonna, I want to come back to this at some point this year. I want to plant some seeds in your mind. I'll, so I want to just share with you. I want to take a few minutes to finish this message, share for you some of the things that LaDawn and I do on our Sabbath that we've developed over time. And we only started calling it a Sabbath really recently through some stuff we're doing with staff and some training and whatnot. But, but uh, it's something we've been striving for for some time already. And so I'll just tell you what a typical Sabbath looks like for me. Just so you can see that this is not some legalistic thing, but it's actually, I'll show you one more verse then too, and I, I really believe it's a gift from God. But a typical Sabbath for me. So for me, I'm here at church six days a week, Tuesday through, you know, into Sunday. And, and the first thing about my routine is I just like to get up early. I like to get up early. I like to go to bed early. So my alarm clock goes somewhere 4.30 to 4.45 every morning, six days a week. So Monday is my day off. That's my one day to disconnect kind of from here. And that's my day, no alarm. Because I, I want that seventh day to be different from my other six. So I'll laze around in bed there till whenever, usually around seven o'clock or so. And then, and then the kids get up and it's breakfast together as a family. And so the kids all get up, they get up around 7.30 and we just have breakfast all together. And we just, it's, it's, I love it. And uh, now, uh, one of the beauties is now, I gotta take them to school an hour later, that three of my oldest ones go to school now. So my Sabbaths are getting more and more restful, which is very good. <laughs> I've got one more. My youngest is a four year, my four-year-old Boaz. He's going to go to school in fall. And then Genesis 1 is going to come prophetically true in my life. And then God entered into his rest on the seventh day. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we have breakfast all together. But then we have an hour together. So it's a Sabbath, and I want us to focus on God. So one of the things that we do after that is before I take him to school is, is uh, we do a little family devotional there right after breakfast. And uh, just take out and you say, boy, you're so super spiritual. You know what? You, know, just, you should just see your family. Two Mondays ago, devotion time ended up being, you know, Charlie had bought this new hacky sack and he started whipping it around the circle. And then we started playing catch. We were laughing ourselves crazy uh, playing catch. And we did that for 20 minutes and I took him to school. So uh, we're really quite normal. But anyway, I also don't like to plan things. I plan so much stuff here at church. I just cannot plan another devotional. So I just have a devotional book and I just read out of it and then we pray together. And I take him to school. I come back. I still have my, my uh, youngest there, Boaz. He's four. And uh, I'll spend a little time exercising, whatever, in the morning. I'll have some fun with him. You know, we might go to the pool. Or if the kids have a day off, we'll go to the pool and do something fun. Then we have lunch. And then after lunch, now, by the way, I still, you know, sometimes you've got to do errands and stuff like that. It, you have to do that. But one of the things we've also learned is if you're going to have a Sabbath, and, and this is true, too, in, one, in a book we're reading together as a, as a staff, but we've learned this over the last couple of years already, LaDon and I, is if you're going to have a day off, you actually have to plan the rest of the week getting some of your errands done so that your day off doesn't just end up being all your errands. So you work, 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 and then the seventh day you did all your errands, and then you're back to work, 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 work. That isn't a, that's not a Sabbath, okay? And again, it's not about rules. You still end up with some errands here and there. 
But one of the things we tried a few years ago, now some of you young families, this will just, this will be worth the whole message in just this little piece of advice. But one of the things we started doing years ago is like, I don't want to always get to my day off and then we got to do all these errands. And the other thing is I want to teach my kids to work. There's nothing that drives me more crazy than if I got a vacuum of floor and kids are sitting around playing games and playing teddy bears and all this sort of stuff. If daddy's cleaning house, you're cleaning house, okay? That's one of the, that's the 11th commandment in our house. So one of the things we instituted a few years ago, which was awesome, we had, we've had such a blast, is, uh, and now we've had to change the day just because of scheduling and stuff, but we would do uh, Thursday night was family house cleaning night. That's what we called it, and everybody knew. Every week on Thursday, we have supper together, and then after that, because otherwise it's going to all end up on a day off, but after, after supper, the whole family, we clean, we take an hour and a half or whatever it is, the whole house gets vacuumed, the van gets vacuumed, the floors get washed, everything gets dusted, everything's cleaned up. And we do it Thursday, was family house cleaning night. Now, by the way, I just, so many families, you don't do something like this. And you wonder, well, when am I supposed to do this? When am I supposed to do this? And then you're worried, is my wife mad at me? Because I'm not this. Just pick a day and do it all and teach your kids to help you. It's the most amazing thing. Plus, they don't feel like you're nagging them while you sit on Facebook and tell them, hey, go clean up your room. Because you're working together with them. It just feels better. And we do it on Saturday mornings now. Now I get up early, do some message prep, and when they get up on Saturday mornings, it uh, just works better for us now, but then we just, we clean the whole house together, and that frees stuff up. You've got to plan your week so you can free yourself up to actually have a Sabbath. And then after lunch, you know what I do after lunch? My goal is every week, I do three hours of absolutely nothing. It's just like shock. Our pastor is late. Three hours of nothing? See, a lot of you grew up in homes where you didn't dare let your mom or dad, heaven forbid they should find you doing nothing, right? Because you were going to catch something then. You were going to catch some responsibility if they caught you doing nothing. So you have these built-in, you know, these kind of inner responses. You don't even know where they come from. i got to be busy. i got to be busy. After lunch, you know what I do on my, on my Mondays? I lie down on the couch, and I have the sweetest nap ever until Boaz wakes me up. And I listen to music, I'll read a good book, I'll lie, on the, I'll lie on the floor, I'll, you know, if it ever gets nice this summer, I'll go for a walk. You know, I just, it, but it's just nothing. I do three hours of just absolutely nothing. Do you know what? Time actually feels like it slows down in a good way. Very few of us ever know what it means to have more than 30 minutes just doing nothing. It's actually a gift from the Lord. And you actually feel your whole self start to quiet down. I don't look at news during that time. Oh, that is not going to quiet you down. I don't look at media. I don't do anything with a screen. It's just three hours of nothing. And at the end of that, the kids come home, and that blessed nothingness is gone. And uh, <laughs> we play hard. And then you know what is the tradition we started now is, is we, we make supper all together as a family. And because that's what Sabbath is about. It's about doing things different than your other days. It's not about doing just nothing, although it's nice to have those couple hours. It's doing things different. So we, just, we make supper all together as a family. So Ladon's the general there, and she's got us all doing stuff, and the kids and me, and we make supper together. It's a joy. And after that, we don't have sports commitments. We don't have other commitments. It's an evening for us to play games. It's an evening to make a bowl of popcorn and listen to Odyssey. Be quiet. And then at the end of the day, we have family devotions together one more time. You say, boy, you guys have a lot of family devotions. You know what? The rest of the six days, it basically just doesn't happen. But one day a week, could we quiet down? Could we focus on God and on each other? 
And by the way, this is also a helpful piece of, you know, advice made for some of you with younger kids. We put the four-year-old in bed before that devotional time because he is a devotions wrecker. <laughs> I don't even try. Go to bed. And when he's in bed, then we can have devotions. But you know what we do for that devotions? Because I don't like to plan things. I just, like I said, I have too many things to plan. We just all take our Bibles and journals. We all pick a place to read in the Bible, wherever we're in our Bible reading. We just read, journal some stuff. And in the last five minutes, we share a bit and pray. It's a wonderful way to end the day. And you know what? You have a day like that, and after, at the end of that, you feel so connected as a family. You feel connected to God. Now you're ready. You know, you get up the next day, you're ready to go to work, and when you're at work, you can really work. This point isn't that, and the point isn't that you need to do your Sabbath the way we do ours. Absolutely not, because it's not about a bunch of rules. Point is that the Sabbath is meant to be a gift to us. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Did you ever notice that? He made us a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. He made it for us. He didn't make the Sabbath for a rule to give. He made the Sabbath for us. It's a gift. Some of us need to start unwrapping that gift. Some of us need to start unwrapping that gift. That one day a week is different than the other six. We can serve God, yes. And love people. It's not just about doing nothing, but it is about loving God, loving people, and doing something different than the rest of the week. So here's what I know. I know that for many of you, starting a Sabbath routine will be very difficult, and that's okay. You don't have to go from zero to 60 all in one shot. Maybe there's one thing you want to try from this message. This one thing. Maybe for you that one thing is just, you know, I'm going to experiment with one day a week. Many people have a two-day weekend. If you have a two-day weekend, you know, figure out in there a 24-hour period. If you can with your job, some jobs you just can't. But if you can with your job, I'm not checking my emails. I'm not planning for work. But you just disconnect. You actually disconnect your mind from work. I'm telling you, it will refresh you in ways you never imagined. If one day a week for 24 hours, you would disconnect from your other six. Maybe for you, it's finding some time to just get a couple hours to just be quiet and do nothing. You don't have to feel productive. That feeling of productive, you know, a lot of people are actually afraid of silence. You're afraid of the questions you're going to have about your own existence. If I do nothing, do I have any meaning or purpose? You're a child of God. You aren't the accumulation of all the things you do. Sometimes we need to just not be productive in order to realize that we're loved. Not for what we do, but just because he loves us. So maybe you want to carve out just a couple hours even in an afternoon on your day off when you just do nothing. Or maybe you want to take an evening once a week as a family on your day off and make sure there's no other commitments on that day. Make supper together, read the Bible together, something like that. Start with one thing. Here's what I know. Jesus has given us a gift called the Sabbath. And there are a whole bunch of us here who would find a deep well of joy in our lives if we would, if we would start entering into that in obedience. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. You are such a good God to us. You are so generous. You are so kind. You are so joy-filled. This isn't about legalism. This isn't about a bunch of rules, Jesus. This is about us entering in to your rest, making a discipline in our lives of disconnecting from our other six days so we can focus on you, building relationships in our families and with our friends, 
Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your good law. And I thank you for your grace that saves us. And I just pray, Jesus, that putting these words into practice would be a joy for us as we experiment with meant with this in the coming weeks and months. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.